Um, and it, it sort of bleached out a lot of the um, aspects of my identity. Um, and of course, I came to live in Asia, where I'm seen as a Westerner. Um, and so in the course of doing the research and conducting a journey across the Middle East, I discovered that actually I, I actually am someone else. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, uh, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And like always, I'm delighted with today's guest. And he will introduce himself. Michael, can you please do that? Hi, my name is Michael Vatikiotis. I'm a former journalist and writer turned private diplomat. Um, I work in Southeast Asia and Asia on mediating the end to armed conflict, but I also write. And I'd like to talk today about how those two halves of my life as a writer and journalist and as a private diplomat have started to come together in the writing that I do. A, a small comment from my side, Michael, is, is that, you know, because I, I um, did a little bit of research about what you're doing and, and I, I see a lot of, I see some similarities with, with actually my sister, who is also a writer filmmaker and, and and a painter and she um when i when she is asked about everything she does and you know what she loves most her answer uh is writing is my husband painting is my lover and filming is my friend so you know if you were asked about all those things that you do because you were also also in the arts what would you say i would say that i was i was trained to be a professional And my heart was always in the arts. And in fact, I studied fine art as a, at school and, and I would always wanted to go to art school, but my head always told me to be a professional. Um, and I suppose I, I always aspired to do something rather than just to see and to sense and to feel. Um, but then of course, when I became a, a journalist and a writer after university, I managed to bring those two things together. I could still do things through writing, mm -hmm. advocate for things, cover, tell stories, but then also do it with my, with, my, with my heart and my other senses because expression, of course, is a creative form. I've always wanted to write about serious issues, mm -hmm. issues that I deal with as a professional, as a peacemaker, as a mediator, how society works, but I've always tried to, to bring those issues out through the writing that I do and therefore to be creative about them. And so one of my most 
passionate interests has always been pluralism in society. How, mm. how different elements of society manage to get along peacefully and in harmony, not necessarily perfect harmony, but manage to get along without fighting one another. And this really came from my earliest years as a student. When I first studied Asian politics and history mm -hmm. at university, I learned about plural societies in Southeast Asia. And then over many years later, when I even after I'd done my doctoral research uh, on pluralism, mm -hmm. ethnic pluralism in Northern Thailand, I realized that one of the reasons why I was so interested in pluralism was because my own family was from an extremely pluralistic background with so much diversity um, set in the Middle Eastern context, in the cosmopolitan Middle Eastern context. And so it began to come full circle after many, many years mm -hmm. as, an, as, a, as, a, as a student, as a journalist, and as a practitioner working on maintaining stability in, in Asian societies, I realized that this was very much a reflection of where I was coming from. And that's when I started to explore my family's origins and, and what I call the lost art of mingling. Mm. I am very fascinated by that because you know I, I I have we have a lot of similarities there I think I um if you compare the work that you're doing and the issues that you're looking at um you know compare the beginning of your career with the last year and a half um what are some of the changes Well I think it's fair to say as as a member of the baby boomer generation mm -hmm. that I grew up in a long period in the late 20th century and early 21st century of immense optimism and hope mm -hmm. for human endeavor and society. And as someone whose children is now in their 30s, I recognize that in the last few years, there's been huge evaporation of all that hope and optimism about human endeavor and society. Um, and as a member of that baby boomer generation, I still cling on to it. And many of us do as professionals, as writers, we still like to be idealistic. But I look at the immediate generation that's coming of age and I, and I don't see that in their eyes. I, I think there's a great deal of pessimism and disillusionment with the, with the way that society, whichever society they live in, is, a, is, is, is developing. And I think th this actually fills me with quite a bit of sadness because it, it's in a way an indictment of my own career and, and, and those of all my, my peers um, because we were supposed to have contributed to making a better world. Um, but in fact, you know, that hasn't happened. Um, so I guess, you know, if I look at my work in the last few years, I think it's just become harder and harder to instill hope um, and to 
and to persuade people that there is a better future. Um, when clearly what they see around them is that there isn't hope. And one example I'd like to give is, you know, is when I embarked on my most recent work, which is a, essentially a family memoir, but is a retelling of the history of the cosmopolitan era in the Middle East, a journey in search of my family's roots as Italian Jews in Egypt and Greek Orthodox Palestinians. Um, I looked at the, the last few years of movement away from the Middle East with refugees coming from Syria um, into Turkey and getting onto rubber dinghies and trying to get to Europe. And I reflected on my own family's past, which was the reverse flow, where my Italian forebears and my Greek forebears got onto rather respectable boats and took passage to Egypt and to Palestine in search of prosperity and found it. Um, they were welcomed and they found jobs and they did well. And they were, if you like, Europeans fleeing Europe at a time of war and instability in the late 19th century and finding new lives in the Middle East and prospering. And so when I reflect on what we've seen in the last 10 years or so, this immense trauma of people having to leave cities in, in the Middle East to try and make lives in Europe where they've met nothing but resistance, prejudice, hatred. I think, you know, for me, it was a, it was a very stirring contrast. Um, and I felt that I needed to point out that actually back in time and, and through history, it wasn't like that before. Um, and so that's, that's what drove me to look at my own family's past. And, and that's your latest book called Lives Between the Lines, right? A Journey in Search of the Lost Leaven. I, I, and I tried to search for it here in the States. I, I couldn't find it. on. A... It's published in, at the end of this month, beginning of August. Oh, okay. That's why. Ah, got you. And I will make sure that we, we mention that in the notes of the podcast. Um, I would like to ask you a question about the writing of that book, because I, I think it took, how long did it take to, to write? That's one part. And then the second is, you know, I, I think it was it's a very personal book, right? So, um, yeah, what did it do to you as, as a person, this, this search for, for, you know, basically part of who you are and, and look at your family? And Well, having grown up in the United States and in the UK, and I was always sort of conditioned to feel Western, Mm -hmm. And in terms of background, ethnic background, I am a product of the union between an Italian and a Greek. Mm -hmm. But they were raised, born and raised in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, the journey in search of my Levantine family almost introduced me to this other dimension of my identity, which had been largely suppressed, as I mentioned earlier, as a, as a member of that baby boomer generation that mm -hmm. were raised in this context of the, the values of institutional integrity, um, what, what we call the rules-based international order. Um, and 
it, it sort of bleached out a lot of the um, aspects of my identity. Um, and of course, I came to live in Asia, where I'm seen as a Westerner. Um, and so in the course of doing the research and conducting a journey across the Middle East, I discovered that actually, I, I actually am someone else. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm the product of bits of DNA that were scattered around the Balkans by sort of Ottoman janissaries invading uh, Europe. Mm. Um, and the sort of the, the Sephardic remnants from, from the Iberian Peninsula who arrived in Europe and then went on to the Middle East, um, you know, incredible diversity. Um, and one single English relative who happened to be a Welsh Catholic. Yeah, fascinating, uh, uh, Michael. And how long did it take you to to write uh, the, the book? Or was it something that you know you worked on and then you put away and and picked up again? I, I worked on it for many years in terms of collecting material about the family mm -hmm. from family members before they died, mm. um, my father included. Um, and then in the last four years, I, I really rather intensively researched. Um, the, the Levantine milieu, the history, because of course I live and work in in, in Asia, uh, and so I really had to do a lot of reading and research. And I travelled extensively in the Middle East, and I know the the region very well. And mm. also my work took me there every so often. But then in the last three or four years, I I conducted a journey in stages, mm. um, quite a deliberate journey. Um, across the Middle East in search really of my of where my family had lived um, and encountering the sort of remnants of their world, um, whether it was bricks and mortar, mm. whether it was culture um, and history. Um, and so the book is, is very much a journey um, of me discovering this lost world, mm -hmm. a journey in search of the lost Levant. It is very much a lost world. And it's a world that when you remind people in the Middle East today, they get quite angry. You know, it, it's, it's not a happy memory because of course it coincided with the colonial um, world. And that's another mm -hmm. aspect of this, of discovering this that, 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 that shaped my approach, which was, mm -hmm. well, wait a minute, my parents were born in the Middle East at a time when it was colonized by Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and they were products of that colonial era. They weren't. They were colonial subjects. Um, they hadn't arrived there as colonizers, but they were. They were products of that milieu, and they benefited from it too. Mm -hmm. And so I had these mixed emotions. On the one hand, they were Europeans who moved to the Middle East at a time in the Ottoman era when everyone was welcome to come and help out and. Uh, especially Egypt, you know, the, the Ottoman rulers wanted European expertise, they wanted European capital, they wanted European uh, talent, mm -hmm. um, and they prospered. And then when the British arrived, the British looked at them and said, well, you can help us too. Um, and so 
I had mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, the Ottoman era was a liberating form of pluralism mm -hmm. um, that didn't really care where you were from or who you were, as long as you obeyed the rules and, and you were allowed to, to be who you were. Um, and then when the, when the European powers came along, they, they harnessed this diverse group of people who we call Levantines to the imperial project. Um, and so that's why I was left with mixed feelings because um, I think my father and mother always felt that they inhabited two worlds, um, the cultural world of the Levantine and, and the world of the, of the imperial ruler um, that provided them with the benefits of education and eventually allowed them to sort of go and live in, in Europe. And, and so famously, it's been said that the Levantine identity is like, is like a committee. Um, and you have different members of that committee all arguing about your identity, who you are. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've now realized that I'm pretty much that way. Mm. I, I, I realize also that one of the ways, the ways in which I've adapted to living in Asia is by blending in, which is, of course, um, something that you do when you are of a diverse heritage um, and you're always seeking um, to identify with a host mm. so that you can feel comfortable. Yeah, I, I no, thank you for that. And I'm really looking forward to reading the book. So, so I, I think I will have a lot of um, things that I recognize and, and that are similar, <clears throat> you know, for me and my family in, 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 uh, in the narrative. Um, you know, you, you were referring to colonialism, and I think that, uh, you know, that has is responsible for so many things in this world, right? And, um, you know, it's, it, I think it's also... Uh, responsible that we are still you know facing uh, these systematic racial issues and injustices um you know my organization is celebrating 75 years of its existence and um you know we are also using that as a kind of reflecting of you know how did we do in those 75 years and one important point is how did we do around racial justice issues did we speak enough out? Where what was our position, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. If I ask you, because I know you work in this field as well, you know, through the center, and um, if I ask you to look at the NGO sector, how it's has done its work, and many of those NGOs have been working since the Second World War. Um, yeah, what would be your uh, a great on the, on the report card and and michael i mean i i do realize that you know it's difficult to generalize right uh, but but yeah reflect a little bit on uh, from your point of view how, how you think the ngos have done well i think if i were to pick one particular issue where i think things have changed a lot and, and i think that is you know when we ended the 20th century there was a sense of common purpose for mankind um, after the end of the Cold War. And there was an emphasis put on the values of what forms of government um, and 
the extent to which justice and equality were part of governance, um, was something to strive towards. But then very quickly, particularly after the events of 2001, um, identity politics began to rear its head. And in many ways, I, I often say that one of the byproducts, the unfortunate byproducts of the sort of third wave of democratization, hmm. particularly across Asia, has been the liberation of identity. And with the liberation of identity comes conflict. Indonesia is a very good example of where a country that was forged in the fires of, of anti-colonial struggle and spent many, many decades forging, uh, establishing a common identity as Indonesian citizens in the last 30 to 40 years has developed to some extent a rather alarming capacity to divide along religious lines uh, in particular along religious lines, which the founding fathers of Indonesia actually spent an awful lot of time trying to avoid. They fought wars about it internally. And yet because, ironically, of more freedom, and this is, of course, a very difficult thing to say, um, identity politics took root. And I was covering because I, every year, I, every, every time there's an election, a presidential election in Indonesia since 2004, I make a point of traveling around parts of the country during the campaign. And so I have a sense of perspective. And in the last election, which was in 2019, it was just extraordinary the extent to which identity politics was determining uh, the battle lines, mm. whether you were in favor of an overarching Islamic identity for Indonesia or not, became very much a dividing line. And, and I think that's also increased levels of conflict in many parts of the world, as we know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's one of the most unfortunate things that's happened to our society is that identity has been harnessed to the political um, life mm -hmm. in many countries um, and created divisions that, that weren't quite there before. In, I mean, of course, there were always people of different religions and different identities. But the, 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 what we saw at the end of the 20th century, which was the great hope for people coming together, globalization and so on, more or less evaporated very quickly into the first decade of the 21st century as identity politics took hold mm. and I think that's a great shame and and what was the role or what is the role of the NGOs within that I think there's had to be a lot of retooling and re-engineering mm. um, many NGOs of course were were adapted to or established for the purpose of advocating or pursuing social justice um, better governance Um, and yet, it became more difficult to achieve some of those goals because you were constantly facing these divided societies, um, and NGOs were not well equipped to deal with religious conflict, um, with 
religious extremism and militancy. Um, because these are people sometimes you can't have an argument with. Um, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very difficult and they're extremely violent. I don't think we've ever really began as negotiators, as mediators, we've never really been able to sit down and resolve anything through dialogue. I'd like us to go to to stay with the religious religious peace, and um, especially around the younger generation, because um, that is kind of a theme within my podcast. We often talk about that. Um, yeah, what do you see in terms of the younger generation around uh, religion and spirituality? And some people say there is no difference between the two, and others they think there is. So you know. Um, would like to hear from you what you think about it, and especially maybe from an Asian, Southeast Asian perspective. Well, I think it's clear that one of the drivers of Islamic extremism in Indonesia was in fact the sense among the younger generation of a loss of self-esteem and a lack of opportunity, um, which easily made people more easily susceptible to arguments that um, an extreme militant form of faith um, is the key, not just salvation in the next world, but also recognition in this. And I think that was the more important part. I mean, much has been made about Islamic preachers who promised people all sorts of things in the afterlife if they blew blew themselves up. But just as importantly, the lure was to young people who had no future, who could be, who were told that they could be something in this world if they signed on. And I think that was very much a product of the lack of opportunity that many people in the younger generation had um, in the last 20 years or so, because uh, the, the economic boom was faltering and so there were a few choices and so i think that that appeal to to young people who who didn't feel they had a future um i don't think it had anything to do with spirituality it was more an opportunity um for people to feel they could be somebody Mm. in an extreme sense um or more generally what we've seen in Asian societies is, of course, religiosity has become a big, bigger part of their lives because, again, economic, social economic conditions have become more difficult. There's more aspiration. Um, and if people can't meet that aspiration, um, then, then they turn to religion. Um, there's the sort of anonymity of living in big cities that means that people want to come together and identify with the faith, because in the village they perhaps didn't need to do so, but but in the larger city, you know, where there are social and economic challenges, the church and the mosque and the temple have a great deal more appeal. And so we have seen, I've seen in my more than 30 year career across the region, the advance of religious faith. But as I said, I'm a bit hard nosed about it. I think a lot of that mm. is down to social economic 
um, challenges mm -hmm. and the people feeling that they need to turn to faith um, and often with little understanding of it mm. um, but they need a they need a something to rely on mm -hmm. even in the country where I live in Singapore you know which is a fairly advanced prosperous country it's not about how rich you are it's about it's about how uncertain you are about the future um, that drives people into churches in huge numbers. Which is maybe different than, than uh, in the Western countries, right? Because the, the youth is not going to church. The young people are, are really, um, are really now becoming much more reliant on and it's not just religious faith it's sort of other creeds and beliefs as well mm. um you know uh i think it's striking in the myanmar context and in, in the burma context that young people are so angry and, and so driven to um protest and even violence and yet religion doesn't seem to be a part of that mm. um the belief system is one of um, a, an incredible resistance to oppression um, because they saw that they had so much opportunity that, that they lost when the military took power on February the 1st. But you don't see the role of the Buddhist, the Buddhist faith in this. Hmm. It's, um, it seems to be a much more collective urge to be free and to struggle for it without attaching itself to any any faith-based um, creed or, or platform. Interesting. Yeah, that is. You write about a lot of different uh, issues, and especially in, in the region. Um, if you have to pick one issue that you worry about the most, what would that be? I, I think we're entering a new period of authoritarianism. Um, you know, the last 15 years ago, when I embarked on this new career as a private diplomat, there was a, a great deal more optimism about democratization and the post-authoritarian era. Um, and now that seems to be going into reverse. Um, two coups in Thailand. Mm. Um, uh, of course, what's happening in Myanmar, but, but also in Cambodia, um, a rapid reverse from quite lively elections in two or three years ago to the suppression of opposition. And similarly in the Philippines, which was one of the beacons of democracy in the region, but seems to be retreating into a hard form of authoritarianism. And, and that's, you know, disappointing because, you know, it was such a struggle to get there in the first place. Um, you know, a, a good 20, 30 years of struggle to establish democratic transitions um, that now appear to be falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, one sidestep, you refer to yourself as 
private diplomat. Can you explain that for the listeners? So my day job is for the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, which is a a Swiss-based private foundation mm -hmm. that essentially uses the tools of dialogue and mediation to mitigate and resolve conflict, armed conflict, violent conflict. Um, but I like the term private diplomat because, of course, in all these processes that we work on where we try to convene dialogue, this used to be, of course, the job of diplomats themselves. Um, but we are increasingly finding that there is space for informal private diplomacy and not just on the ground where there are internal conflicts, but also at the political level and between states as the multilateral system begins to deteriorate and become less effective um, in the mitigation of conflict. Um, there's more space for private actors and organizations like ours. And that's why I, I, I use, I've always used the term private diplomat. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it perhaps elevates the role or seems to elevate the role, but I think it describes the work very well. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. Um, you know, we talked about a lot of worries and a lot of issues, difficulties that the world is facing. Uh, are you still hopeful? As a historian, one, one has to be hopeful um, because there's been so much progress. Um, and if I look at where I sit in Asia, you know, obviously, compared to what, where the region was 30 years ago, mm -hmm. there's been so much development. So many more people have emerged from poverty or near poverty. And the middle class has grown tremendously. I live in cities like Singapore and Bangkok, which are essentially, you know, retail service driven economies um, by people who 20 or 30 years ago would have lived in, in rural areas. Farming have now come to the city, acquired education um, and can consider themselves middle class. So obviously there's, there's a lot of progress. Um, and I'm hopeful that in this part of the world, much of that will continue. There is an aversion to conflict and there is an aversion to, if you like, some of the more self-destructive impulses we see in, in other continents. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm reasonably hopeful. I'm, I'm optimistic. I wrote a book about Southeast Asia in 2017 that many people thought was, was quite bleak and grim when it came to describing the politics and the dynamics of conflict, but I ended on, a, on an optimistic note that civil society is quite is growing more and more um, robustly in this region, and citizens are becoming empowered, and through digital technology and, and the internet, are beginning to to do more for themselves rather than allow rather than rely on the old elite structures. Um, of course, it also causes conflict, mm -hmm. um, but. You have high levels of education. You have high, reasonably good systems of public health. Um, this region has been affected by the pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic very badly, but has fared rather well in terms of managing it. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful.
like to do three last quick questions and then I allow you to get back to one of them after you've answered. Um, my, my first is, you know that I walk, you know, you know, I'm going to walk for the 10th time in October to uh, raise awareness about hunger and poverty and injustice. If you would be asked to walk 100 miles for a cause, uh, which cause would that be? Peace, the cause of peace. Okay. Um, if, you would, if I would ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that embodies for a big part what you are about, which song would that be? Um, you know, I thought about this before, and, and, and the, the problem is that there are so many, um, <laughs> and I couldn't pick one. Um, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. and so my tastes in music are eclectic and classical in the sort of modern music context. Um, but I think it, it, probably, it probably would be... Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of grapple with the, um, it was probably going to be an Elton John song. Mm. Um, and because he's, you know, I, I grew up with that music. Um, and I think it would be your song. Mm. And then the, the last of the three questions, uh, a message invitation or a question for the listeners. The question I would have for the listeners is, is how long will it take before we recognize that one of the greatest causes of conflict in the future will be climate change? Because we all think of climate change as affecting our environment, but it also affects human behavior too. And I think it will become one of the main drivers of conflict in the future unless we do something about it. Thank you. And any, any additional things you would like to say on any of the, the last three questions? No. Okay. Well, then I would like to thank you for, for your time and, and uh, you know, the fact that you wanted to share your story with me. I really am um, looking forward to reading your, uh, you know, your last book. So that will be published next month, right, you said? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for your, for your time. And um, yeah, all the best with everything you do. Well, thank you, Maurice. I very much enjoyed the conversation and I can see we have a lot in common. Yeah, we do, we do, thanks. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And last but not least, I would like to ask your attention to the Ration Challenge as some guests of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, together with me and my wife, will take the Ration Challenge. And that means we will eat the same rations as a Syrian refugee for a week to raise money and save lives. And by raising money and if you support uh, the Ration Challenge, you'll bring emergency food, healthcare and life-saving support to the people who need it most. So 
if I could ask you for a big favor, go to rationchallengeusa.org slash walktalklisten. Then you will find our donation page. And if you can support us or at least share the information, that would be so great. Thank you so much. rationchallengeusa.org slash walktalklisten.org 